a fire on the mountain burning out of control. The sky is set ablaze in all its red and gold. The temperature's rising and the wind is blowing hot. We gotta turn this ship around before we run aground. We gotta turn this ship around before we run aground. Welcome to Off the Record with Paul Hodes here on WKXL AM and FM, streaming live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com, where our shows are archived for your binge-listening pleasure. We're also a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. And I'm really pleased to be joined today by a scholar of politics, Matt Robeson, who is the author of a moreperfectunionforum.com, a terrific blog devoted to all things political, but especially to a deeper dive to what's really going on in politics. Matt, welcome back to Off the Record. Thanks very much. You know, before we get going, it's uh, impeachment time here in the United States. It's only the third time in the nation's history that a president has um, been impeached and is now up for trial, in trial, in the United States Senate. And I thought I would start with with a little bit of history, just a little bit of history about impeachment that folks may not know. And then we're going to do a little bit of a dive into what it may, what it means and what's going on. But I, I want to start this way with a with a quote that is from Alexander Hamilton. Hamilton, he of the Broadway show, Hamilton. Uh, This is not rap, but it's uh, kind of a rap from Hamilton. And he said way back when, when the folks were considering whether there should be an impeachment clause, he said, When a man unprincipled in private life, desperate in his fortune, bold in his temper, possessed of considerable talents having the advantage of military habits, despotic in his ordinary demeanor, known to have scoffed in private at the principles of liberty, when such a man is seen to mount the hobby horse of popularity, to join in the cry of danger to liberty, to take every opportunity of embarrassing the general government and bringing it under suspicion, to flatter and fall in with all the nonsense of the zealots of the day. It may justly be suspected that his object is to throw things into confusion, that he may ride the storm and direct the whirlwind. So it seems that the days of Donald Trump have called up the quotes from long ago, because Donald Trump appears to be exactly the kind of problem, exactly the kind of zealous despot that our founders feared. But lucky for us, or so it would seem lucky for us, our founders didn't leave things completely to chance. They put in a clause about how to remove Persons in the government whose malfeasance or maladministration was a cause to remove them from office. Now, one paragraph um, from Federalist 65 is particularly 
relevant today. Um, and in Federalist 65, the so-called Federalist Papers, which are uh, interesting reading and serve to help us understand the foundations of our uh, Constitution, Hamilton made an extended argument for the states to ratify a Constitution with an impeachment clause. The founders, his fellows, and some of Hamilton's office were quite familiar with the concept from English law, and several state constitutions had impeachment provisions for, quote, maladministration. Now, that's a term that Madison objected to and which caused uh, Madison uh, Mason, uh, when he was drafting, to add high crimes and misdemeanors to the clause as its replacement. Hamilton argued strongly for the Senate and not the Supreme Court as the place where impeachment charges would be considered at trial related to, quote, the misconduct of public men or, in other words, from the abuse or violation of some public trust, saying they are of a nature which may with peculiar propriety be denominated political, as they relate chiefly to injuries done immediately to the society itself. The prosecution of them, for this reason, will seldom fail to agitate the passions of the whole community and to divide it into parties more or less friendly or inimical to the accused. What an interesting observation. What an interesting observation. He went on to say, in many cases, it will connect itself with the pre-existing factions and will enlist all their animosities, partialities, influence and interest on one side or the other. And in such cases, there will always be the greatest danger that the decision will be regulated more by the comparative strength of parties than by the real demonstration of innocence or guilt. So lo, these many years ago, Alexander Hamilton recognized exactly what we are witnessing today in the Senate chamber in primetime television with House managers making their case to a chamber, the upper chamber, controlled by Republicans who've generally and basically said our result is predetermined. We don't care about your stinking impeachment. We don't care about your articles of impeachment. We don't care what he did. We don't really want to hear witnesses. We don't really want to have a trial. We don't really want to see evidence. Most of us, while we've taken an oath to be impartial jurors, are more guided by our party affiliation, our partiality, our factions, than by any real demonstration of innocence or guilt. Because, to be totally fair about it, the case made by the House is compelling. The timeline and the facts, even as we have them, though incomplete in minor ways because of the lack of some documentary evidence, which the White House has caused its various arms to hold back, the evidence, as we have it, is compelling. It's live testimony. It's some documents. uh, It's a clear timeline that shows the corrupt intent 
of President Trump and his cabal of henchmen to basically threaten to stiff the Ukraine unless the Ukraine helped Trump defeat his expected ally, his expected opponent, Joe Biden, in the upcoming election. I mean, it's, I don't know whether that constitutes bribery, but it's uh, pretty close to bribery at the governmental level. It's not the usual way things are done, especially when it's being done with an ally who's facing an actual war with an adversary of the United States, a war with Russia. Not when we'd already pledged to the Ukraine that we would do everything to protect it when they gave up their nuclear weapons, which had been left over from uh, the Soviet Union. Um, it, the whole thing just stinks. And the factionalism, partisanship and lust for power has apparently so overwhelmed the Senate chamber that a conviction even on the face of these facts, which deal with a president who's elevated his own interests above the national security of the United States, because it's in our national security to work with our allies uh, to prevent uh, our adversary Russia from taking territory, gaining territory, to stand up to Russian aggression, in this case, through our ally. And we'd promised $391 million of military assistance, which the president ordered withheld until he got his public demonstration by the new president of the Ukraine that uh, investigations into Joe Biden would happen. So the whole thing stinks. And Hamilton foretold it low these many years ago, and thus we have an impeachment clause in the United States Constitution, which allows for impeachment uh, in the House and trial in the Senate upon high crimes and misdemeanors, exactly the scenario that was predicted by Hamilton, and quite different from the case of President Clinton, who was involved uh, with an allegation of a of a lying in a deposition uh, having to do with a a personal indiscretion uh, in which the national security was not uh, threatened in in any way uh, that might be compared to the current situation. Um, and then you've got the Nixon impeachment, and he was never tried. He resigned first um, when he was caught directing a scheme to uh, uh, break into the Watergate um, to uh, get uh, material on political rivals. Um, this is a singular moment in American history because the very foundations of our democracy are the rule of law. And if no one is above the law, not even the president of the United States, if the Republicans in their partiality and factions don't do their duty, what message will it send? What message does it send? So, Matt, before we jump into the political ramifications, any thoughts about the ramp that I've just gone on about impeachment and what's going on in this trial in the Senate? I think it's a very refreshing thing to hear how prescient the founders were about the situation we find ourselves in. It's sort of reassuring that people never really change. 
And they did indeed foresee uh, the, the situation that we now find ourselves in. And I, I think it's interesting that one of the things that they foresaw was the, the decision to make impeachment a political process, not a judicial process, not something that sat in the Supreme Court uh, at the head of the judicial branch of government. And that's relevant because, on the one hand, I think that a history like what you just ran through um, does remind us of the solemnity and the importance in kind of a very principled way of the, the issues that we're dealing with. In another sense, though, um, the founders foresaw that this was ultimately going to come down to a practical political question. And so I don't see a conflict there in moving this conversation and, the, and, and for Democrats who have been wrestling with whether to impeach Donald Trump for a long time now, for them considering the political dimension of what this is all going to lead to. And that is where I'm concerned. That is, when, when you referenced a moment ago the kind of historical uh, import of what we're going through and how this could echo down through the history books, I really worry about the flip side of that. Um, I really worry about, since we know where this train is going, I'm very concerned about what an acquittal will mean for how unrestrained the president will become in future generations. If this kind of behavior is sanctioned, by which I mean approved through acquittal by the legislative branch of the U.S. government, if they say this is okay, it is literally unimpeachable behavior, what does that mean for the presidency, for the Congress, and for our republic in future generations. So that's my concern out of that whole very interesting and useful historical background. And we're going to answer that question after this break. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes on WKXLAM and FM. We're talking with Matt Robeson, the author of AmorePerfectUnionForum.com. We're going to take a short break to hear from our sponsors, and then we'll be back. Don't go away. We're back. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes on WKXLAM and FM, streaming live over the internet, nhtalkradio.com, where we are archived for your binge-listening pleasure. We are a podcast on Google and Stitcher and iTunes, so you can reach us anywhere in the world, day or night. We're talking with Matt Robeson, who is the author of AmorePerfectUnionForum.com, a blog devoted to the deep dark underbelly of politics. Matt manages to take very complex issues and, well, makes them understandable. And uh, he sees trends that many folks don't. We're talking this week about impeachment. Uh, In the last segment, we uh, went through a little bit of history. Uh, We are left with a trial which seems to be 
headed for an acquittal of the president, no matter what kind of evidence the Democrats uh, produce. And so the trial is underway. Matt, how's it playing so far? Well, I think uh, you anticipated sort of how it's doing um, in the uh, structure of the question because we know where it's ultimately going. So, look, there's kind of a short-term, one-week-in kind of answer, and then there's the long-term answer. If you want to look at it from just a, how is this week gone, uh, how, how's it going so far, the answer is, you know, from the Democrat standpoint, eh, it's pretty good, uh, maybe about a B-plus. You know, their goals were to get a lot of eyeballs on this and to get the message across that there's just a mountain of evidence that Donald Trump abused his presidential power. Republicans are trying to get across their message. That's all partisan sham. And for the most part, Democrats have accomplished their goal. The coverage has really emphasized what the Democrats have wanted it to emphasize. And that's relevant because that's the predominant way that most Americans are going to imbibe information about impeachment um, is through catching a little bit of the the coverage here and there. On the other hand, um, you know, in terms of direct viewership, it's also pretty decent. You know, 11 million or so uh, during the day, uh, the afternoon of day one. Uh, We're watching it on TV, seven and a half million on cable during the evening. And that's up from the Clinton impeachment. On the other hand, um, the primetime cable viewing is still about three million lower than a single broadcast show that, that airs on Tuesdays, which is NCIS on CBS, which I, I'm sure is a great show. But um, well, the NC- uh, let, Let's be fair. NCIS has a much higher body count, and uh, the uh, actors are much better looking, and the camera shots are, are really much more fun. The editing is better. The music and sound effects are good. I mean, the Republicans have stacked the television deck on this by... Uh, as uh, because they control the chamber and the proceedings, uh, according to the press, this thing has been locked down pretty hard. And the only television shot we get is a basically a a shoulders and head shot of whoever is talking at a lectern bef- in front of a the marble a backdrop of the dais. You don't get to see any reactions. We don't get to see the senators walking around and drinking their. Uh, milk or water, because that's all they're allowed. I mean, that's like it's like let's imprison the senators in their chamber and only feed them milk and water. And apparently, some of them are going stir crazy. But we don't get to see that. I mean, apparently, in the back of the room, it's like misbehaving uh, classroom kids. They're uh, walking around. They're trading notes. They're throwing spitballs. They're you know they're having the basic fifth grade experience of being lectured at, and uh, they they probably don't like it. But On the other hand, you've got to admit that uh, Adam Schiff has put on uh, a a quite brilliant performance in laying out the case, because while the House impeachment proceedings went on and on and witnesses were called, for the first time, the entire narrative has been laid out sort of uh, in a chronological time frame in addition to pulling together all the evidence in a masterful way. I mean, Schiff's performance over the course of a nine-hour day as the principal opener, closer, and organizer um, has been, I think, really, really uh, stunning, Um, uh, especially 
his uh, closing Wednesday evening in which he uh, made the points that not only is this an abuse of power, not only has it been damaging to national security, not only is the case uh, compelling and overwhelming, but that in any trial in the United States of America, uh, you would expect to have the documentary evidence that's available, but as evidence of the obstruction of Congress by the president, uh, we don't have documents that would clearly uh, be relevant and material and that any juror in any trial would would want to see. In some sense, it seems to me that at least at the moment, uh, the Democrats are are really playing this for you, we need to get the truth. You people aren't letting us see the truth if you don't ask for the documents, fully expecting, by the way, that McConnell and the, and the Republicans will not roll over, will not ask for any documents, counting on uh, very few, if any, def- defections of any power to stand up to McConnell. And I think the Democrats are playing that for the longer-term political argument that uh, not only was this a farce of a sham because they'd made up their mind to begin with. It's kind of like a W.C. Fields uh, trial. You know, it's a sham of a farce of a travesty of justice. But in the longer term, they also want to be able to complain that uh, none of the documents uh, were produced, that the obstruction of Congress continued, aided and, and abetted by the cabal, and hopefully to achieve some political gain beyond what we're seeing right now in uh, in in uh, regaining control of the Senate, hoping that uh, with the polls coming in showing that a majority of Americans, a bare majority apparently, are in favor of removing the president, that maybe they can translate this into some political momentum um, in terms of the ra- various races in the Senate? I, I think that's spot on. You know, one of the great rants in sports history came from the, at the time, New York Jets head coach, Herm Edwards, who, standing up at a microphone giving a press conference, said over and over again, you play to win the game. But that's not exactly what's going on here from the Democrats' standpoint, at least not in the sense that they are trying to actually achieve a conviction in the Senate. They know, you know, we all know, that that is not a realistic goal. What they are trying to do, as you outlined, and I I think that's 100% right, is they're trying to hang a lantern on their biggest problem. Um, And that's a piece of political advice that comes from Chris Matthews, of of all people, before he had a cable show. He actually wrote a book called Hardball, which is, I recommend it. It's one of the best uh, on-point volumes of practical political advice that's ever been produced. And he titled the chapter, Hang a Lantern on Your Problem. Really shine a spotlight on the biggest challenge for your side. Well, the biggest challenge is we know the end of the story. The end of the story is the Senate is going to vote to acquit. And even if the Democrats pick off one or two Republican votes, you still need to have 67 in order to convict and remove Trump from office. So what they are trying to do, and this is, I think, why Nancy Pelosi held the articles of impeachment for a month, is they're trying to highlight the very point you were raising a moment ago, which is the fact that the Republicans are in the tank here. Their their minds are made up. They're not impartial. 
And there's a little bit of polling evidence that they're getting some traction with that argument. 86% of Americans say that they want their senators to act impartially in the impeachment trial, and 68% of them believe that senators are not going to act impartially. And that's a problem. So from the sense of trying to advance an actual uh, impeachment and removal, which I think a lot of you know, base Democrats think is the, is the goal here, no, the Democrats are, are, are not being successful. But in terms of sort of trying to make a best of a bad situation, I agree that uh, uh, Congressman Schiff is doing as good a job as, as can be done. Now, you know, part of the reason uh, it seems pretty clear that um, Speaker Pelosi uh, held on to the articles was because she knew, while we may not have known, that there was additional evidence or developments uh, being produced. And, and what happened um, during the month or so she held this evidence were uh, two things of note. The first was uh, Lev Parnas. Lev, he, <laughs> the, the, the Ukrainian muster, Lev Parnas, he, he and Igor, friends of Giuliani, friend of Trump, the picture with Lev Parnas and Trump, Trump says, I don't know him at all. Lev Parnas says, he know me, he know me very well. So Lev Parnas, who was working with Giuliani to perpetrate the scheme that uh, seems to have started back in the spring with Giuliani's orchestration of the removal of Ambassador Yovanovitch because she's a, she's a real patriot and she's a real uh, diplomat who, who understands uh, foreign policy and how, how, to, how to achieve the ends. And uh, although appointed by a Republican uh, president, uh, puts country above self and wasn't going to clearly would not have been the kind of person to have been part of Trump's illegal scheme. Anyway, Lev Parnas, who was the one of the go-betweens Giuliani used, came forward, um, some say only because he's afraid of what's going to happen in his criminal matters because he's been charged criminally, but he gave this um, interview with uh, Rachel Maddow and has produced documents and that highlighted various aspects of the scheme that were, had been somewhat uh, murkier before he came forward. And in fact, uh, in the Senate trial, uh, Schiff and others were able to reference the information Parnas produced. And the other substantial development was John Bolton, who now famously called this whole affair a drug deal, and it's a drug deal gone bad, uh, uh, and warned people that they had better uh, talk to the liars, lawyers because he saw exactly what was coming down to the pike. Coming down the pike, he's offered to testify if subpoenaed by the Senate. And that's pretty fascinating because um, it seems at this point there's no love lost between Mr. Bolton and Mr. Trump, uh, that for all uh, you might say about Bolton as a neocon or a hawk or any other policy that those on the left might disagree with, it is possible, it is possible that his personal integrity would compel him to tell the truth about what was going on in the White House uh, with this scheme. And that would be first-person testimony um, 
of what the president uh, said and did and was thinking and how he was directing things. Uh, it all got too much for Bolton. He ultimately uh, resigned. But he is offered to testify if subpoenaed, even though the White House is trying to keep everybody under wraps. So those developments happened while Nancy Pelosi held this thing. And and as Schiff has been saying, who knows if more evidence isn't going to keep coming out. So I know you've got a break coming up here, um, but can I do a classic radio tease for your listeners? Oh, yeah, definitely. I, that, that's really, that, that, I could have planted that, but uh, go ahead. After the break, I'll give you two numbers that will really bum you out about John Bolton and impeachment. Oh, it's off the record with Paul Hodes here on WKXL AM and FM, streaming live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com, where we're also archived for your binge listening pleasure. We're talking with Matt Robeson, the author of a more perfect union forum.com, a blog devoted to politics, and we're talking all about impeachment at the moment. We're deep into this week of a Senate trial, and when we come back after these words, we'll pick up where we left off with Matt's tease and keep on going, and then we'll talk about some other political issues in primary season. Don't go away. It's off the record. We'll be right back. Welcome back. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes here on WKXLAM and FM, streaming live over the Internet at nhtalkradio.com, where we're archived for your binge listening pleasures. You can review all of our previous shows, our phony summit conferences between President Trump and Vladimir Putin, many of our shows with Matt Robeson, with whom we're talking, the author of a more perfect union forum.com about our deep dives into politics. And you can catch us as a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. We're talking with Matt Robeson. And Matt, you are one smart guy, and you did a beautiful thing just before the break with a traditional radio tease that I know kept the listeners on the edge of their seats waiting to hear the two numbers you're going to tell us about John Bolton. The two numbers that I'd like to share with you are 62% and 32%. 62% are the proportion of Republicans who say that they literally cannot think of a single thing that Donald Trump could do that would cause them to no longer support him. 32% are the proportion that a new Pew poll finds of Republican voters who say that Donald Trump has definitely or probably broken the law since he launched his presidential campaign, but they still strongly oppose removing him from office. About 60% of them say he should not be removed. Remember, these are Republicans who admit that he's committed a crime. So my point about John Bolton being, and this goes back to what you were saying uh, right before the break about Adam Schiff and the, and the really strong job that he's done in the first week of the impeachment trial, 
it the objective here for Democrats is not to achieve removal from office. It's not to achieve conviction. It is to make the contrast as stark as possible between the mountain of evidence of the abuse of power by the President of the United States and the actions of the Republican senators who are inevitably going to vote to acquit him. I think that's it in a whole nutshell. So to the extent that John Bolton's testimony forwards that objective, sure, it is desirable for Democrats. But it's not really a be-all and end-all. It doesn't really change the overall shape of what Democrats are trying to achieve or, frankly, what Republicans are trying to achieve. So if the Republicans, in their wisdom, if a couple of the Republicans, let's just say Susan Collins in Maine, who's uh, in some danger, and Mitt Romney, who hasn't exactly been a fan of the president, buy the Democrats' argument that, you know, it, let's just, uh, whatever we're going to do when it comes to voting on conviction, we will just put that aside. But, you know, we really ought to see some paper. Maybe we really ought to hear some witnesses. And it's not going to change our minds, of course, but at least that removes the Democrats' argument that we stonewalled everything and wouldn't let the truth out. We, um, we, uh, we, 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 we were such good people that we said, let's hear the, the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. We'll have these folks come in. We'll look at the paper. And then when it's all said and done, we'll simply say, eh, yeah, yeah, uh-huh. But it doesn't rise to the level of an impeachable offense because we're just not convinced that it was really all about uh, national security. We're convinced that the president was concerned about corruption so that we're not setting precedent for the future. If there was a real threat to our national security from this, of course we would be looking at this more seriously. But having now heard the witnesses and seen the documents and considered this, it's just not impeachable conduct. Yeah, you know, I didn't enjoy that movie too much the first time when it was called the Brett Kavanaugh hearing. And uh, I have a feeling that uh, the sequel that's going on now with Susan Collins is not going to be much more enjoyable. Um, I heard that uh, she took about three hours the other day to decide on lunch before ordering exactly what Mitch McConnell's having. Um, So, you know, I think we all see where this is going. Yeah. We all, we all see where it's going. So listen, while, while this sham of a farce of a travesty of a, of a sham is going on in Washington, D.C., um, a, a number of people who think they would like to be president of the United States are sitting in the back of the room eating M&Ms and throwing spitballs at Mitch McConnell's head. Um, that's not very good for, for presidential campaigns. What does it mean about what's going on on the trail and what's going on? I mean, polls are showing Bernie's up and Biden's holding steady and Buttigieg has fallen and Warren has fallen and Klobuchar is kind of hanging back there and you know, what's going on? What are we seeing? Now, a whole bunch of endorsements came out in New Hampshire recently. And, you know, talk to us, a wise one. What are you seeing out there? Oh, it's like that uh, old Don Henley song, The More I Know, The Less I Understand. Um, you know, it, 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 since we last talked and looked at the polls, and we took a deep dive uh, on the polls two weeks ago, um, and it was, uh, I thought, it an interesting discussion, so I recommend it for anyone who's uh, trolling around Stitcher for a good podcast. Um, 
you know, I think the short answer here is that not a lot has changed in the last two weeks. But the story shifted a little bit. Um, you know, if you look at the polling averages that Real Clear Politics and 538 put together, uh, and some of the state polling averages, um, it's like you said, you know, Sanders does appear to have picked up a couple of points. Um, Warren and Buttigieg, uh, stable or Buttigieg maybe on a slight downward slope. Um, you know, and, and in the early states, you're seeing a, a bunch of new polls. Um, and there's some variation, but in the early states, it's a slightly different story. It's a little bit weaker for Sanders. It's a touch stronger for Biden. So you put it all together, it it remains a pretty muddled story. Uh, But if you really try and have a few big-picture takeaways, one is the Sanders-Warren fight that erupted about a week and a half ago hasn't really hurt Sanders, uh, at least not yet in the polling. Uh, the top three appear to be pretty durable uh, in their polling standing. And the ones who are kind of clawing at the outside at that 7 8% level, they're still hanging on. Uh, in some cases, you know, Buttigieg sliding down a little bit, Klobuchar sliding up a little bit, but they all have a long way to go. Uh, and then, of course, there's, there's the unknown that you pointed to. What about the fact that Warren, Sanders, and Klobuchar are going to be stuck in D.C. during this impeachment trial? How much is that going to impact them in Iowa and New Hampshire, these early states uh, that, you know, that there's an emphasis, an extra emphasis because they're smaller states on a little bit more hands-on politicking? And so those are some big uh, questions that are hanging. Meanwhile, you know, I saw a poll somewhere, I don't know where, that that showed Bloomberg actually gaining some traction in at least one of the early states. And, I mean, far be it from me to say what $200 million will buy, and he's not even on the ballot. So I don't even know how the polling had him. Maybe it was national polling, not early state polling, uh, that shows Bloomberg kind of moving along. But, you know, I mean, that's what $200 million will buy. So, so here's a question. Here we are. Let's, let's just let's take a trip. And we're gonna travel to Iowa, and we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna drop down a couple of weeks from now because in this world of relativity and chaos theory, time is not linear. It's all happening at the same time, or it's already happened and it's coming around in a circle. And we have been able to time travel, and we are in a an Iowa caucus in in one of these towns in Iowa and 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 there aren't enough corners for all the candidates there's Bernie and Biden and Buttigieg and Warren and Klobuchar and Steyer and Andrew Yang and 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 John Delaney is still still trolling around and Michael Bennett let's not forget Michael Bennett there are all these people and they have to achieve They have to get to a 15% threshold. And the reason I'm going to ask this question as we go forward is because often what happens in Iowa does have some significant impact in uh, New Hampshire. So if we look at the current scenario where there are, let's say, four people likely to be in double digits, at least as of today, the Bernie, Biden, Warren, and let's say Buttigieg 
are in double figures, and everybody else is kind of knocking at the door, maybe six, seven, four, five, six, seven, even eight percent, even nine percent, even Klobuchar, let's just say she claws her way up to 10 percent. People then get to caucus again. And they get to change their allegiance. They get to move around the room in political musical chairs to pick other candidates. So if the top, let's just assume that the top four split up 60% of the vote with 15% each or some variation of that, what then happens? What then happens in round two, who goes where and who benefits? So that is the money question in democratic politics right now, and it's very complicated, very chaotic. There has been some uh, polling and, and opinion research done on people's second choices. There's all kinds of challenges with trying to present numbers like that and how reliable they are. Um, and Iowa is notoriously hard to pull from that standpoint. So that is a kind of complicated way of saying it's a little too complex to say for sure. I can say two things. One is that there's a, there's a version of your question, which is sort of the classic, how many tickets out of Iowa are there? It's hard to know, but you could see a number of scenarios where, as you outlined, let's say there is sort of a top five of candidates who get above seven or eight percent. And so even if a Buttigieg or a Klobuchar end up having their supporters in the caucus rooms have to reshuffle away from them, Iowa does release people's initial vote preference results. And so there will be a heck of a lot of spin going on from those campaigns saying, look, we're viable. We caught one of those tickets out of Iowa because we're at that 7 or 8%. And who really cares about, you know, the handful of delegates out of Iowa anyway? And there's some legitimacy to that argument. Um, that's, that's sort of one thing. The other thing I could say is that there are a variety of stories that the campaigns are going to have to prepare for and spin here. So just as an example of the kind of prep that you're going to have to think your way through, let's say you're on the Klobuchar campaign. Let's say you're polling it in the averages at about 8% in Iowa right now, which you are. And so you have to prepare for a scenario where, like you said, your supporters are going to have to reshuffle in most caucus rooms and go to other campaigns. If they predominantly shuffle away from Klobuchar and let's say to Elizabeth Warren, that could help both of them. You could have a scenario there where Klobuchar makes the argument I outlined a moment ago and says, I caught one of these tickets because I've got viable, I'm fourth place, you know, et cetera. And Warren has been advancing this argument of, I'm the only one who can go across the factions in the Democratic Party. I'm, I'm a unifier. Look at this, Amy Klobuchar, centrist candidate and co-receiver of the New York Times endorsement. Her supporters predominantly came to me. I am pulling from the moderates and the liberal wing. And that gives me an argument. So, again, very super hard to game out all of those scenarios. But you can start to construct at least a few narratives of, of how this could go. 
You have to remember, folks, that one of the most hotly debated clauses in the Constitution was whether or not there would be impeachment and what it would look like. It was brought up early at the 1787 convention in Philadelphia. Constitutional heavyweights such as James Madison, Ben Franklin, James Wilson, Governor Morris debated the impeachment clause at the convention, and Alexander Hamilton argued for it in Federalist 65 after the convention. And folks were very concerned about how they would deal with it. Some wanted to have trials in various places, and uh, as Eldridge Jerry stated impeachment was needed as a check against presidential abuse of power, saying a good magistrate will not fear impeachments. A bad one ought to be kept in fear of them. Others said no point is of more importance than the right of impeachment should be continued. Shall any man be above justice? George Mason asked. And as Benjamin Franklin said in his own unique way, impeachment was preferable to the more traditional way of removing a monarch in Europe by death. So with that happy thought, we're going to leave you this week. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes on WKXLAM and FM. Thanks to our sponsors. Thanks to our listeners. Thanks to Matt Robeson of AmorePerfectUnionForum.com for joining us. We'll be back next week with more Off the Record.